Hi and welcome to Brits on Flicks. I'm your host Graham and with me as always is... Brian Lomax from Brian Lomax Movie Talk. And this month the movie is going to be The Frighteners, which I chose last month. The reason I chose this movie is pretty much because I upgraded from the DVD to the Blu-ray and I just wanted to watch it again. So Brian, can you tell us about how you first discovered The Frighteners or when you first watched it? The first thing I heard about it was the review in Empire Magazine. I think they gave it a four-star review. And this was in the mid-90s. I think the film was 96, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And I was, like, a sucker for Empire back then. I can't... my, My passion for film had really taken off at that point. And it was in 1994 when I started reading Empire magazine. And that kind of became my film bible so to speak and I often found myself kind of agreeing with the reviews the scores I would give films kind of tended to be the scores that Empire gave them so I I, I kind of it made me feel good about myself uh, as a, a kind of film critic kind of person you know I had that in mind that maybe that was a future career path or something like that and it made me feel good that my my thoughts were in line with the the people who actually did this as a uh, as a line of works thoughts. Uh, so yeah, it, it it got my interest. I liked the the sound of it. The synopsis sounded pretty good, and like I say, it had a good review. So I, I went and I I got the D, well video at the time, uh, not a DVD. I got the video out from the video shop because. Obviously, I was I was a bit too young at the time to go and see it. Um, well, well, actually, I would have been sixteen when this came out of the cinema. But I don't know for whatever reason, I didn't go to see it at the cinema. But I, I remember that review sticking with me uh, when it came out on video. I got it out, checked it out, and I remember watching it with my dad actually, and we both liked it. I remember my dad laughing quite a bit throughout it, and I think when you when you've chosen a film from the video shop and your dad seems to be enjoying it, there's something about that that kind of endears it to your heart a little bit more than perhaps it should. But, yeah, I enjoyed it. I liked the concept. I liked the characters in it, one character in particular, which we'll talk about as we get into the film. And, yeah, I enjoyed it. And then, obviously, Peter Jackson went on to much, much bigger things straight after this film he got Lord of the Rings on the back of this bizarrely um, but yeah looking back now it's it's kind of questionable as to how that happened but yeah yeah you know I liked it I got it on DVD and then for whatever reason I, I had a DVD cull a while back a couple of years ago and that was one of the ones that ended up getting cold and not necessarily because I didn't like it at that time but I think I hadn't watched it in a while so I, I guess I just felt you know I wasn't in a rush to watch it so why why bother keeping it and then obviously you you wanted to do it for, for the podcast so uh, yeah <laughs> we're back with it that that almost sounds like you're blaming me there <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm roughly the same, it came out in 96 I'm assuming I must have saw it round about then or 97 I didn't see it in the cinema um, But much like yourself, I was really into movies And I spent pretty much any 
spare cash I had on you know, new videos that came out to buy. And I remember picking this up with another movie called The Ghost in the Darkness. Mm. And, re- and really going home and just like, throwing the two of them on and just, I did a double ball with both of that. Um, and I recently watched The Ghost in the Darkness and that really holds up. It's still a great movie. But it's been so long since I had seen The Frighteners and I, I picked it up really, really cheap on Blu-ray and I, I wanted to revisit it again. Now, I remember I haven't seen Peter Jackson's Brain Dead. it was called. I think it's called Dead Alive now, they've renamed it, or that's what was its international title yeah. or something, but it was Brain Dead that I saw. And I just remember being kind of, what the hell is is this? And, and I, I caught a couple of his other features as well, Bad Taste, which was really low budget, really weird. And I'd seen Meet the Feebles as well, which was a, a, a puppet movie. Have you seen that one, Brian? I've not seen that one. I'd, I'd seen Bad Taste and I'd seen half of Heavenly Creatures. Yeah, that's the only one I hadn't seen. And when this came out, I was really curious about it. You know, it, it looked fantastic at the time with the ghosts. It's got Michael J. Fox and a, a, a guy who I've always liked in movies. Um, and even when I was at a younger age when this came out, I remember really liking The Secret of My Success, you know, Back to the Future, definitely. The movie Greedy, which I really enjoyed. The Concierge, which had a name change. I can't remember what to. But I really liked all these these movies. Doc Hollywood, they, they were never great, but I always liked Michael J. Fox in it. Yeah, which which was which was the one with uh, James Woods in it, where he plays a oh, movie yeah. actor? It's the undercover one, The Hard Way. Yes, that's it. The Hard Way, that was, uh, yeah, I really liked that as well, I saw that a few times, and it was Michael J. Fox kept appearing in these movies, they were never outstanding, they were never as good as Back to the Future, but they were always something that made me keep coming back to them, and the the cover for The Frighteners was really strange as well, it was that almost plain white cover with the face kind of poking through, and it gave that opinion that it was going to be really scary, and I wanted to see what Michael J. Fox and that kind of thing was going to be like, so quite happily bought it and watched it and I, I remember liking it I didn't love it there was aspects of it I liked there was aspects of it I didn't like I found kind of tedious but over the years I, I went from video upgraded to DVD I upgraded again to Blu-ray so it's something that's always there in the psyche something I wanted to revisit again and when I stuck it on to watch it I don't think I was in the right mindset initially because I tried to watch it a few days ago and all I could vision was the night from the Last Crusade just telling me that I had chosen poorly? <laughs> <laughs> so I just I I'd watched about fifty minutes of. I turned it off. I walked away. I gave it a couple of days. I went back to it and I sat and watched it all again. And I do think it's a very flawed movie that has some interesting concepts about it. Has some things that really work, but it also has some aspects that really just do not work or have dated extremely poorly. Anyway, do you want to uh, hit us with a synopsis for this one, Brian? After high-flying businessman Frank Bannister gets involved in a car accident that kills his wife, he wakes with the ability to be able to see dead people. He becomes a bit of a con man, a bit of a, a vagabond, so to speak, mainly due to the fact that he's grieving for the loss of his wife. But with his newfound abilities, he preys on those who have also lost loved ones and who may appear to be prime candidates for ghostly hauntings. Along with his friends from beyond the grave, he stages such hauntings in order to arrive as their saviour in the form of an exorcist. 
However, when a real evil spirit, in the form of a notorious serial killer from many years previous, starts to terrorise the town, making it look as though his victims are having heart attacks, it's up to Frank and his ghostly friends to try and get to the bottom of it and stop this killer. When the movie opens up, the first thing that hurt me straight away, before you even see any images, is the Danny Elfman score. And mm. it just instantly reminded me of Beetlejuice straight yep. away. Um, Edward Scissorhands, and even a little bit of Scrooged in there. It just all these things can, can flood out to me. And I don't know if the score really fits what the movie was going for, but it's a very identifiable score that seems to almost lose its way throughout the movie. It comes in at certain points, but it's not constantly there all the way through it's not a memorable score, that's the thing. I mean, Danny Elfman has done some pretty memorable scores. <clears throat> I can hum his theme to Batman. I can hum his theme to Spider-Man, you know? Um, but with this, I, I honestly could not hum you one note of the film's score from this. But the thing is, it does feel very much like he's the go-to guy for this kind of film. It almost feels exactly like you said. The studio said, you know what, this is like a modern take on Beetlejuice in a way. It's got that kind of vibe, you know, someone who can connect with the dead, see spirits. There's a bit of a, a black humour to it. It's kind of like a dark comedy. Beetlejuice, let's get Danny Elfman. So it does feel like a very obvious choice, and I think it hurts the film because of that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. As for the genre of the movie, it's, it's classified as a, a horror comedy, and that's a very hard thing to pull off, because to find the balance between these two completely different genres is a, is a hard thing to accomplish. You, you tend to find that one leans towards more something more than the other, so you get one that leads towards more horror or it leads towards more comedy. Or if it tries to split itself down the middle, it's neither horrifying nor funny, mm. which I found a lot in this movie. Maybe I would have found things funnier when I was younger. Most of the jokes fell flat on me. The horror... There was some nice imagery, but again, it's, I've seen a lot more terrifying things and it didn't really leave much to the imagination. And it's just such a hard genre to, to make a movie in, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're pretty much spot on, to be honest. It, it is that really fine line, a balancing act, that if you air too much on one side, you run the risk of scuppering your film. And I feel that with this film... Jackson does try to inject too much comedy in. And if that comedy doesn't make you laugh, then you're not left with the right lot. And for me, that's the problem with the film. The comedy here is very... It's very broad, I'd say. It's like certain characters. When we first meet the guy whose fence he knocks down... He is just so over the top. It's like he's from a completely different movie. I mean, we get more characters like him as the film goes on, but within that first ten minutes of the film, when, when we're introduced to that guy, it's just a sudden tonal shift where you're like, what movie is he from? Because it ain't the one I thought I was watching. I hear the music and I'm thinking certain things about it, and then it opens up to the first image of it, it zooms in on this... Extremely well lit gothic horror house, the kind of things that you you've seen Del Toro do recently with Crimson Peak, and it really reminded me of the house and Death Becomes Her as well. 
which is another Robert Zemeckis movie, and he is an executive producer on this movie. And the first starting scene is a ghost sort of haunting or chasing a, a woman about a house, and the special effects are... Terrible. Crit- yeah, for lack of a better <laughs> word. They are atrocious, really bad. It's particularly the scene where the ghost grabs the woman, who we later find out is Patricia, but that was just... Watching that, I was like, oh, I could turn this off. You know, if I didn't have to do the mm. podcast, I would have had serious issues continuing after that. And yeah. it's funny how, even as you go throughout the movie, the special effects, some of them are rather good and still hold up, but some of them are just absolutely abysmal, like this one here. Yeah, it it has that kind of shiny gloss to it that never makes anything feel real. So you get this ghost kind of coming up, almost like Freddy Krueger did in the Nightmare on Elm Street films, mm-hmm. where he comes through the wall and you, you see the wall kind of having the impression of his face. So it's like that, and this ghost is coming through the, across the wallpaper and up the carpet. But when, the, when we get that effect, the carpet su- suddenly loses its texture. The wallpaper suddenly loses its texture. It just becomes this shiny, glossy, computer-generated effect. And it just, yeah, it just doesn't look right. And instantly you're turned off from any kind of reality that the film is asking you to buy into. And rather than going, what the hell's going on here? You're looking for where the practical and the CGI meet. So you're, it's going through the walls and you, you know the pictures are being practically knocked off and you're looking for the seams in it. When it's in the mm. kitchen, you can see the dishes jumping up. But you know, you're going, oh, that's probably some sort of... A platform that's just pushing up and knocking them off. It's yeah. taking you out of the movie now, rather than wondering what the hell is going on. Yeah, I mean, when this first came out, when I when I first saw the film back in ninety ninety six ninety seven, I thought the special effects back then didn't look that great. To be honest, I mean, don't forget we'd we'd had Terminator two by this point. We'd had Independence Day, so. I, I yeah I I thought they could do better than this with with CGI even back then, um, but now obviously twenty years on it looks even worse. Well, to give you a, a frame of reference, Brian, Starship Troopers came out in nineteen ninety seven, and man. the special effects in that still hold up today. So much better, so yeah. much better. So there, there's, you've got to say there's about a year between those two movies, but what a world of difference. Now, I, granted, there is also a world of difference with the budget. This this film doesn't have a particularly high budget, but it was certainly the biggest budget Peter Jackson had ever worked with at that point. And I really do think that this film is a stepping stone between the stuff he did with practical effects, because if you look at his early work, Brain Dead, uh, Bad Taste, those things... He did some really outstanding work with practical effects in them things, really low-budget stuff, the kind of stuff that Sam Raimi was doing with the Evil Dead films. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a very clear correlation, I think, between the two filmmakers with yes. uh, their t- career trajectories and that. But this was kind of that stepping stone between that, that practical stuff and the CGI stuff, which would bring him to Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, a, there's a few keys in this film, actually, to, to Lord of the Rings, such as the, the ring wraith. There's a very early design for the ring wraith in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when, you, when you look at it, you think, wow, that's, that's literally a ring wraith. That's, that's 
you know, mm-hmm. the evolution on its path to becoming Lord of the Rings. But it just doesn't have the class. It doesn't have the kind of skill and the kind of money, the kind of backing that Lord of the Rings had. So you've got the, the, the effects at the start of it, and then you've got effects later on where you've got uh, Cyrus Stewart and the, the judge, you know, the, the ghosts that work with Frank Bannister in the movie. And they look pretty good. Um, I like the fact that they're in various forms of decay. You know, as the bodies rot in the graves, the ghosts seem to take on that physical trait as well. As you've got the judge who's almost... Uh, he's lost his midriff, you know, from the chest down yeah. to the, the pelvis area. He's just a, a spine. Then you've got the, the, the ring wraith that you said, the reaper, the grim reaper in this, which is probably the most horrific image, if it's, you're saying anything's horrific at all. The way it creeps around the walls... It, it slinks into the shadows, it comes out and it just reaches into people's hearts, squeezing it. It's one of the better images in the movie, that I feel. And most of the scenes with that look pretty good. See, I, I, I kind of disagree. I, okay. like, I like the design of it, like I say, because that kind of Grim Reaper image is... You know, it's, it's it's in folklore. We it's in Dickens. You know, it's it's an image that's been around for quite some time, and it's quite an iconic image. But I do think the effects really let it down in this film, particularly when we're flying over rooftops. There's a scene when uh, Bannister is trying to basically catch this thing. He's he's going after it in the car, and he's trying to catch it, and it just looks awful. It's he, it's going, it's skimming from rooftop to rooftop, and it, it just, yeah, it looks like a piece of paper that is kind of blowing in the wind. Mm-hmm. But it, it has like, almost like blocking effects that you would see in early kind of PS2 games, where there was a fault in the system and they hadn't quite worked out some kink, and then you'd get some character kind of walking into a wall and it, yeah you know what i mean it just yeah. it just looked unfinished when you've got the this reaper in the movie i think most of the or whenever the special effects seem to work best is when they're not interacting with any live actors or moving about things on the set so when they're just sort of working within their own environment they're not supposed to have any weight to them i think they look better like that scene that you said and it's moving over um, the rooftops now. I kind of like the fact that it's waving about. I didn't notice any dodgy effects, so t- to speak. But by that point, I was kind of, I wasn't solely bought into the movie, so I was yeah. probably just let it play in front of myself, um, yeah. rather than taking note into, into everything. One of the good things about the film, because I don't, you know, I don't want this to be uh, us two just bashing it, because I do actually like the film. I I would say I liked it. I don't love it. But I liked it. It's it's mm. a very kind of mild like, but it's still a like nonetheless. And one of the things that I liked is the concept. I do think the story for the film is a very good one. Where it's let down, like I say, is by trying to throw these elements of comedy in. And comedy is not something that I feel personally Peter Jackson has ever excelled at. I think you notice that most when you look at his Lord of the Rings and his Hobbit films. Now, because he went 
off uh, mostly off the source material with Lord of the Rings because there was so much of it. A lot of that dialogue was literally ripped from the pages of Tolkien. So, you know, it, it's great. It's great stuff. You notice that it's not Tolkien when you watch the Hobbit films. There is lots of kind of Peter Jackson dialogue. You know, it's uh, they've had to bump up the story to get those three films out. And that kind of innuendo, dirty humour kind of creeps in to it in some points and you know that that's Jackson. Now when he does serious stuff I think he really excels at it. Now I personally like The Lovely Bones, that's one of his films that really gets underrated I feel, doesn't get so much love. I really liked it, he, he took a serious kind of approach to the subject matter. Uh, you know, it was, it was an adaptation of a very serious novel. Heavenly Creatures is the same. Now, that has a, a little bit of dark humour in it, but for the most part, it's a very serious movie. And I think Jackson excels most when, when, he, do, when he sticks with the serious. I, I guess I don't like his particular brand of humour. It's often quite coarse, I would say. But I do think the concept, as I say, of the film is a very good one. And if he'd have stuck with a serious tone, if he'd have made this film a serious film with the same concept, you could almost keep the storyline intact the way it is, but just make the scenes have a serious tone rather than trying to really go out and out comedy with him. So, yeah, for me, that's one of the strongest points of the film that kept me going along with it, is, is the, the story and the concept, just not maybe the approach. No, I think you're 100% right there. I think the story's the best thing about the movie. I like the fact that it's it's so layered in, in the fact that it's a mystery, but you don't really know that there's a, a kind of whodunit aspect to the movie. You just... You do suddenly think that there is a reaper just taking people out. You don't think that there's somebody behind it, or I didn't anyway. I like the character of Frank Bannister because he's really got a a right strong character arc there. You know, he's you uh, even though it's told in flashback, you see him as a sort of executive type architect who's all about you know moving up in the world to his death of his wife to his lowest of the low to finding a purpose to stopping this reaper you know, too willing to sacrifice himself in the end to stop this deathless death. It's a fantastic arc that shouldn't really be in a movie like this, but that's one of Jackson's strengths, putting that into this kind of tale. But then you've got all these kind of side characters that come together near the end, and there's one particularly that we'll need to get to, and that's Jeffrey Combs <laughs> at some point, but you do have... It, seem, it seems to have pulled together a really strong storyline but, but layered it with the, the perfect people to play the roles as well Jake Busey is Johnny Bartlett is inspired casting because the guy's pretty much done nothing else good in his life but this role <laughs> that he's in he just fits perfectly into this role um, I don't know if he's acting at all but he just he does come across as well, probably a bit like Gary Busey to be fair that crazy look in his eye <laughs> and it's just, like I said, it's, it's, a, it's a really neat story. You've got this, the scene at the start with Patricia. You don't really know if that's connected to anything. By the time it swings back round to that, you've almost forgot about that scene at the start. And even when they go back to that character, 
it's duplicitous in its nature because it makes you think that the mother may have something to do with it. And that's that's the one sort of problem I've got with the storyline. It treats it as though we know that there's ghosts in this world. We know that there's ghosts active and that there's a ghost killing people, but it does try to treat it as though the mother could be the person behind all this. Mm. So in my opinion, it's, it's pointing <coughs> towards it could be a human person that's doing this, but we've already seen a ghost doing it as well. And that's the one sort of problem I had with the storyline. Well, for me, it was just... I, I always knew there was a spirit element to it, but I always thought it would be something along the lines of the mother is controlling this spirit. Mm-hmm. The mother, uh, You know, in much the same way that Frank Bannister can connect with these ghosts. Right. Maybe the mother can. When I, certainly when I first saw it, I didn't suspect that it was the daughter. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really good twist. And particularly because of the way that Dee Wallace Stone plays it. I really yeah. like her in this film. I actually really like Dee Wallace Stone. I, I've heard some criticisms of, of Dee Wallace Stone in, in other you know, various reviews and podcasts and things. I, I've got a bit of a soft spot for her because Critters... It is a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. I, I, I kind of really love that film, and she's in it. And I also really like Cujo. She has a habit of popping up in these kind of cult horror movies. I, I think she's, she's I don't know, got some kind of status, I guess, for being in all these weird little niche cult horror movies. But certainly I, I'm in the D. Wallace Stone camp. So, yeah, but I, I like her in this a lot. I think she plays crazy really well. She does, but in the opening couple of scenes, when we see her attacked by the ghost, but not, not particularly that one so much, but when the, um, the doctor comes to see her, um, you have the feeling that her mother's overbearing and mm. doing bad things to her. And that's in her performance. She doesn't give away the fact that she's crazy in that opening scene. Yeah. It's just... Uh, She's obviously crazy in the right ways. She knows how to make it look <coughs> as if, you know, her mother's doing these things to her. And when she goes full on crazy at the end, it makes it just that little bit more surprising. But you understand her motivations. It, that opening scene doesn't seem as crazy as what it first does. Yeah, because there's cl- these two people are clearly the kind of people who get off from, you know giving each other a bit of a beating, giving each other a bit of uh, violence. To, you know, it's, it's, they're that kind of couple. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you get it, basically, when it's revealed. It doesn't, it doesn't feel false, I don't think. No, no, it does not. Um, so let's have a look at some of the other side characters. Or let's, have a look, you know, let's have a look at Michael J. Fox's character of Frank Bannister. Well, I, I think you said all that needs to be said, really, when you talked about his character arc. He is a really strong character. Obviously, you know, this is Michael J. Fox. We know him from the likes of Marty McFly and that kind of thing. We we expect comedy from him. And we do get a little bit of that from him here, but this is a much darker character, I think, that we're, than we're used to seeing him play. Um, and I think I think he acquits himself well in it. Now, the, the, there are a few physical ticks in this film where you can clearly see that actually he was being affected at this point by the onset of Parkinson's. He he never stops moving. He like if you look at the way he moves in the film, he's always moving a body part. It's almost like 
he's got these kind of nervous, twitchy ticks. It works for the role, but you know, there's a reason this was his last leading role in a film. I think I didn't actually pick up in that. I just like whenever I see Michael J. Fox, he seems to. Whereas most or, or some actors can really be chameleon like and, and move into their roles. Michael J. Fox <laughs> is always Michael J. Fox. He, he moves in a certain way. He has, you know, the way he kind of walks, the way he kind of has one hand stuck down his pocket, the way he kind of tilts his head and looks at somebody or does something. It's just, it's always Michael J. Fox. When you get him for a role, he's playing kind of Michael J. Fox in that role. It may add yeah. little inflections here and there, but the, the guy's just, he's always there. He's kind of like, you know, I'm trying to think of uh, somebody else like, like The Rock. You know, he can't physically go into a role. He's always <laughs> that kind of person. And you like him for some reason. Um, I don't know your thoughts on The Rock, Brian. I think he's great. I love The Rock. I'll watch yeah. anything with The Rock in. <laughs> I'll you, watch the game plan for crying out loud. <laughs> but you're never expecting a, like a character. You're always just looking for The Rock being kind of doing The Rockisms. Mm. Yeah. So let's look at some of the other side characters. And I want to look at one of the biggest misfires or cameos I've seen in a movie in a long while, and that is R. Lee Ermey. Uh, Pretty yeah. much mm. just... In full-on metal jacket, full metal jacket mode, basically. Yeah, and it it's horrible. It feels like a cash grab, a, a fake pandering to that movie. It's got one shot particularly that is just taken from Full Metal Jacket while he's shouting down at the camera. And it just feels horrible to watch and it feels dated and whoever approved that needs a swift kick to the nether region. It just shouldn't have happened at all. It's just... The thing is, I saw this film before I saw Full Metal Jacket. (laughs) I remember I saw this, obviously... It was around 97 when I saw this, and I think I saw Full Metal Jacket literally about a year later. And I was like, what? It just it was just like, this guy. Mm-hmm. I've seen this guy before. Like, the exact same guy playing the exact same role, but in a different film. So, yeah, like I mean, from what I gather, Ermi was a drilling sergeant before he got into acting. That's literally what he did as a career, and that's why they got him for Full Metal Jacket. But that he's kind of... He's just always played that persona. I have seen him in a few other things, and he, he just seemed to play that drill sergeant. Well, from what I know, and this could be conjecture at this point, but from what I remember is he was an actual drill sergeant, and he was brought in to Full Metal Jacket to help the actor who was going to be the drill sergeant mm, mm. Um, do his role, and he was that good that Kubrick just kept him in the role. Yeah. Um, which is understandable, and it works for that movie, but ripping it completely off for this movie, is it, it boggles the mind. It's you know what it feels like? It feels like those kind of Wayans Brothers, scary movie type... Uh, so-called comedies that are are supposed to parody Mm -hmm. certain films, but they don't really understand what a parody is. So they end up just kind of rehashing those films, but, but in a really bad way that that's not comedy. And that's essentially here. Like I say, I just don't think that Peter Jackson is good at comedy. I think he's good at, at making serious 
films. Mm-hmm. No, no, I think you're a hundred percent right. It's it's identical to those kind of movies, and it's just a case of, uh, hey, look, do you, have you seen this movie? Because we've seen this movie. Isn't that great? Mm. Wink, wink. You know, it's it's that kind of thing. It just doesn't mm. work. In it. Ticking it, boxes. Yeah, it, but it actually, more than anything, it takes you right out of the movie because there's no other movie references throughout this. There's no other characters from other movies. It, it just, it feels pandering, and it's pandering that feels wildly. Now, the three ghosts that work with Frank Bannister, you've got the judge, you've got Cyrus, and you've got Stuart. And rather than being no pun intended, fleshed out characters, they tend to be more caricatures of either stereotypes and people or times through places. You know, you've got the, the disco sort of black man, you've got the nerdy, geeky white guy, you've mm. got the sort of old western guy. And I remember loving these characters like back when I first watched it, but nowadays they, they really were nails on a chalkboard for me. Yeah, uh, And I had no fun with them whatsoever. In fact, I found them more annoying than anything. Yeah, they, they really grated on my nerves. To be honest, when I first saw the film, they were probably my biggest sticking point. I, I didn't like them all that much then. I, I Every time they're on screen this time when I watched it, I just lost interest. And when we first see them, that scene, I mean, I don't know about you, but I watched the director's cut, but their introductory scene just seems to go on and on and on. When they're, when they're in the house talking to Frank and they're just all kind of mulling about doing their own thing, it just never ended. And, and it didn't really add anything to the story, it didn't add anything to the characters. I, I just wanted, to, wanted it to stop and it didn't. Yeah, I, I just watched the regular version. Um, like I said, I'd watched half of the movie and I put it off because I wasn't really in the mood for it. I mean, I went to watch it a second time. It was kind of late at night and I just Googled what's the differences between The Frighteners and the director's cut and the, the quick answer was 12 minutes more and I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> I'll just stick to the regular theatrical <laughs> cut, thanks. Uh-huh. An hour 49 or an hour 50s, en- enough for this. So another character that you touched on earlier on was Le- uh, Ray Lansky the guy who mm. Frank Bannister's garden he runs over. Yeah. And he is, like you said, with the three ghosts, this is my sticking point. This guy yeah. was nothing but annoying. Really not. Just, just over the top. I mean, yeah. like I say, if they'd have played this film serious, they could have made this guy relatively sympathetic. He could have still been a bit of a douche, but you could have felt some kind of sympathy for him. But because they make him so over-the-top kind of slapstick comedy, I don't know what to feel for him, just because I don't find him funny. And I can't sympathise with him because he's such a grade-A douchebag, like over-the-top. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and it's not until, I'd say, later on in the movie that I actually felt kind of sad for the guy, to be fair, because he... He is, like you said, a, a complete douchebag, but he genuinely loved his wife, Lucy, and he genuinely thought that their marriage was perfect, even though it wasn't. It was probably going to collapse at some point. And he, he, he sacrifices himself to try and save her as well. you know. But it's too little, too late. The guy's been so obnoxious, so annoying earlier on in the movie that although he does a little bit of good near the end, you're still kind of glad to see him bite him. Which sort of takes us on nicely to his wife, Lucy. 
the sort of female lead of the movie, who I quite liked in this role, but I don't really remember her from anything else. She has something of a um, Andy McDowell quality about her. I feel like this, if, if this had been a bigger budget film at the time, it would have been Andy McDowell in this role. Yeah, I can see that 100%, and she's she's pretty good in it. But a lot of her character turns and decisions just make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it just makes you wonder, like especially the one, I'd say at, at Ray's funeral, where she asks him if Ray's there, and, and then it just jumps to a dinner scene, you know, <laughs> the grieving yeah. widow, which you can only assume is hours later after burying, burying her husband is out on which could be construed as a date with yeah. some other guy. Yeah. And at one at one point, doesn't she also go to the house, Patricia's house? And I'm sure I found myself asking, why is she here? She's she's had she's met Patricia once, literally uh-huh. once. Why is she here to try and pull her out of this house as if she has some kind of deep connection to her? It just didn't ring true as a character. No, I, I can't think... Do you know, I can't even think why she goes there, but I know that's the scene where she goes there and Ray gets yeah. uh, gets killed, but I, yeah. I can't think of why she went to that house mm. or why she so believes in Frank either because she doesn't really... I mean, what does she see of him? He, he takes out some wacky thing that, that captures a ghost in a small foil bag... <laughs> He looks as if he's not washed in days. He's got the the, the Columbo coat rocking <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the yellow car that's just a mess. Yet she seems to have all this belief in this guy. Yeah. And it just never quite rings true to the character. And it's like even later on in the movie, there's scenes that just kind of... Even when she, she meets him at the police station and he's like, you know what, I lied, I told you everything was lies, it's all made up, I don't really speak to your husband... And yet she still tries to rescue him and get him out of the place and, and solve this mystery. Just you're like, why? This is the grieving widow. Surely she shouldn't be like focusing on this this character, but she does. Yeah. It's just connections are made between characters like that. And it's just it's just like, okay, we we get where you're going with the story and from a sto- from a story point of view, you know, if you'd have done more with that. To, mm-hmm. to instigate it, then we'd accept it. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with the story, just the way they go about presenting it, from the way they go about getting from A to B to C. Now, one thing that almost kind of saves this film for me, uh, if, if we're talking characters, and you've mentioned him already, but I feel like we need to get there faster, is Jeffrey Coombs. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love Jeffrey Coombs in this film. He's hilarious, but, and it just, go on. What were you, you going to say? He does not belong in this movie. <laughs> no, he does not. <laughs> he does not belong in this film. There are many things that don't belong in this film, but Jeffrey Coombs here. He's just he's like Jim Carrey on acid. I don't know. He just. But it, it, I like the character. I like the. We have this history of... I mean, like, again, you didn't watch the director's cut. My memories of the theat- theatrical cut are a little bit sketchy, but mm-hmm. 
in the director's cut, there's a scene where he gets out of the car. This is when uh, the 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 doctor woman she's in the police car. He's arrested her. He's kind of put her in the back, and he goes to this gravesite. Yeah, and he pulls his top open and he shows all these kind of tattoos and scars and goodness knows what of all this kind of abuse that his body has taken over many many years of undercover FBI work now this is this is basically Fox Mulder after years and years of abuse and <laughs> but in in that scene particularly in the director's cut I'm sure they go into it a bit more because he gives this whole big speech and he talks he literally talks about all the abuse he's had the sexual abuse and goodness knows what else that has been done to him in his work like going into cults and like be, be, being an undercover member of these cults to try and bring them to you know bring them to light and whatnot so in many ways you can kind of sympathize with this character but also see his point of view it's not <laughs> It's not crazy for him to think the way he does about the Michael J. Fox character because he's had dealings with all manner of the occult. So when he has this theory about Michael, about uh, Bannister, about Frank Bannister, how he's the killer and actually this apparition is something he has created in his mind to to basically fight this this darker side of himself that actually sounds like a a reasonable theory and like i say if the film had been played seriously i think that theory would hold more weight yeah yeah i think you're 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 on the right track there um i think the character is absolutely amazing and it, i think it's <laughs> from the haircut to the text <laughs> To the, um, to even the point like, like I said, I watched half the movie and I watched that again, and I love the point where he's telling the story to Lucy Linsky mm. about Frank Bannister's car crash, and he yeah. is, he knows everything off the top of the head, but as he's getting more and more detail, he's, he's backing out further and further in the hallway, and you're like, and I'm sure his voice is going down and down as well. He's, he's Really drawn in well, the he, story. He literally starts mumbling, doesn't he? Because that that police officer guy goes, "What are you you're, you're, What are you saying? We you can't understand a word you're saying now. You're just mumbling." And he literally is just at the door, going, "A minute, a minute, a But it's just and the he, way he knows every intricate detail of that case. And, he's, and it's precisely down to the second type of thing. And it's just, <laughs> but I think that the, the thing that really got me was. The, the walking backwards into the hallway away from the women, expecting us to shout at any moment. It's just crazy. But he's got some of the best lines in the movie. Like you say, that scene where he opens his shirt and he's like, my body is a road map of pain. <laughs> where did that line come from? That is... If, if it's not in a comedy movie and he does that, that is a horrific image and a horrific thought. It is... That's one of the most horrific images in the movie because that body looks <laughs> disgusting. Was one think... of my favourite moments of his is when he gets in the car <laughs> and he pulls the ring cushion 
yeah. places he does. He doesn't say anything about it, but you know this guy has got piles. You know that because of who he is as a character, the levels of stress that he goes through and what he's 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 trying to overcome, the psychoses that he's trying to overcome in his life. If any guy is going to have piles, it's going to be this guy. <laughs> yeah. And it's just the way he sits down on that cushion, and you just see that look in the rearview mirror of his eyes, and it's just it cracks me up every time. It's, it's that small pause as he puts his hand into his jacket just before he whips out that ring. It's genius, and it's all down to the actor. No, I think it really my... is. Je- Jeffrey, like, I became a fan of Jeffrey Coombs after seeing this. I di- I'd never seen him in anything before, uh, except maybe Star Trek. But literally, I mean, I've still not seen him in that m- many things. But when I see him, when he pops up, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm always expecting something from him because he's he's just one of those actors that I feel like on set you bring him to a set, you just don't know what to expect. Just let him do his yeah. stuff. Let him do his stuff and he'll bring something that's that's magic. Because, like you say, tonally, he doesn't belong in this film. Nothing does. It's all a bit of a mess. But I don't care, because he brings so much entertainment value. I could just watch a film of this guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's all the little text and that he adds to it, but you can pitch, you can picture the time on set when he comes on, and they're like, hey, who cameras, and he starts, and you can just imagine everybody going, <laughs> what the hell is going on? I don't know, but I like it. Just let it go. Mm. You feel like everyone else is trying to catch up with what he's doing. Yeah. He knows exactly what kind of movie he's in. (laughs) I don't think... I think everybody else is wrong. He's right. Everybody else is wrong in this. But I want to get to just his... My favourite line of his is when he gets stopped in... I think it's the the hospital at the end. And Lucy says to him, you're an asshole. And he comes and goes... I'm an asshole with an Uzi. <laughs> so where the hell did that Uzi come from? It's like something out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Yeah, it's just not even a small one. Uzi massive. just pulls out of his jacket. But yeah, like it's 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 his delivery. It's just that the look on his face. That it's just Jeffrey Coombs sells this character in every way. Like I say, I could watch an entire movie with him. Just going back to your your placing of him in the hospital, though. How does he know to go to the hospital? Uh, psychic abilities again <laughs> through years of torture. It lit- literally is is a a plot hole. I I was watching it and I was he just turns up. He literally mm-hmm. shows up. There's no reason he should go there because, as but, far as he's aware, the woman is going to go back to her office where they placed Bannister into the into the freezer. She goes back and gets him. Now, as far as his character is concerned, the the next course of action for him would be to go back there. And then once he doesn't find them there, he's got nowhere left to go. So the fact that he he just randomly shows up at the hospital at the end is not explained at all. I'm going to to see your unexplained uh, scene there and I'm going to raise you with this. uh, (laughs) The fact that they get... Johnny Bartlett's ashes and they're like we need to get them to consecrated ground we need to get them to a church and in this small village they're racing through all the churches that they can choose but they decide to go to the one to the abandoned asylum where they did the mass murder (laughs) which 
Which was, you know, <laughs> which leads even more credence to how did Danvers like, pick that one? How did they go, well, they're obviously going to go to the abandoned asylum. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, if this was a Scooby-Doo movie, then yeah, everybody would go to the abandoned asylum. That's, that's the place to be. It just didn't make sense. It makes no sense. And I it, will say, though, that when we see the flashbacks to the actual killings, they're really effective. Again, this is the serious stuff. This is the heavenly creatures side of Peter Jackson. Now, Peter Jackson seems to have a little bit of an obsession, or certainly in his early career, uh, a bit of an obsession with serial killers and particularly... Uh, tag team serial killers because if, if you've ever seen Heavenly Creatures it's about these it's based on a true story in fact about these two women these two young women who who became killers and they, they killed together and there is a li- well not a little bit there's a lot of that here with these two characters these two killers and then obviously he, he would go back to the serial killer mould again with, with the lovely bones so that seems to be a bit of a preoccupation with with Jackson and when he concentrates solely on that stuff, as I get, as I say again, this this tonal difference, the comedy and the horror, when he sticks with the serious stuff, with the serial killers at the end here, when we see the flashbacks, it's really threatening. It's really creepy. It's 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 quite, yeah. It leaves a it leaves a nasty taste in in, in the mouth, but in a good way, the way it's supposed to. Yeah, it just feels off. There's no comedy in it whatsoever. The, mm. the people doing the actions that they do are genuinely terrifying because you know that there's no reasoning with them and it sticks out as a truly haunting scene in the movie. And it's like you say, if the rest of the movie was like that, wow, this could have been one of the best horror movies of, of, of all time. Like mm. Not a standard, but yeah. it could have been really a, an affecting movie because it does have those scenes that are genuinely disturbing mm. like this scene is. And with it, with it, with that scene as well, it does kind of. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, with the recent shootings in in schools in America, they they were very, very much in my mind when I was watching this scene. It, it just mm-hmm. the horror of what people go through as as the victims of those kind of shootings. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of terrifying <coughs> nature of the the abstract violence. You know, mm. there's not a specific target. If yeah. you're in front of them, you're the next victim. There's no, yeah. I'm picking you because of this. It's just mm. you're there. Yeah, you're in my way. You're you're going to get a bullet. It's, it's that needless violence. Well, all violence is needless to be mm. fair. But this is just terrifying. But that leads us to a character that I feel that we really kind of jumped over, it, and that is Bartlett himself, Jake Busey, who has that f- terrific, say, line of got me a score of 12. And when you watch the movie back a second time or a couple of times and you, you see that he's got a score of 12, uh, Frank Bannister's wife had the 13 on him, all these other people have the numbers, you're like, why didn't I put two and two together and figure out that it was actually him? But when the reveal mm. is made, I genuinely, the first time, did not expect the colour to be him. I did not know we were trying to guess who the colour was to start mm. off with. And to see his relationship with Patricia as they've moved from, you know, Bartlett dying, she's grew up and now they're back together in the asylum where they started off killing people yet again. It was such a real energising scene. It wasn't one that I was expecting, but it was one that I really enjoyed when they got to it. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I think, again, missed opportunities. I feel like this film could have had a lot to say about the celebrity culture of of serial killers. You know, like, in America, they they go in for that in a big way. That sounds like a horrible thing to say. But, you know, serial killers in in some aspects, in some ways in society, they're put on this pedestal where... You know, it's like, who's the most notorious? Who's got the most kills? And it's like, just that celebrity culture, I think. There could have been yeah. some interesting things to say there, but I think the film kind of loses it, really, under the under the mess of kind of comedy that it's trying to throw at us. I know, I know we've touched on it before th- throughout this review, but the humour in the movie, I feel, is, is really what lets the film down. There is certain humour scenes that I, I like. There is not many that I like, but there is some. Like you said, with Danvers with his ring, that's really well played and his actions are played, but that's down to the character himself. Mm-hmm. There is some humour that just is ridiculous, like when the judge seemingly kills the Reaper mm-hmm. and decides to go and have sex with the mummy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, I was like, why? That's kind of... It's pointless. I hate. Then, I hated that scene when I first saw it, and I hated it this time as well. And then you have the scene after it, which I really liked, which I thought was quite funny, and that is when Cyrus and Stuart are moving the mummy towards the police officers. <laughs> you know, it, it, it does have nice touches like that, mm. and I feel that more often than not, they're going for the going for the mummy to have sex with it rather than the, the, the other joke that's a wee bit more inventive and a wee bit more funny and, and I've really felt that the humour there was one or two scenes that I laughed at but most of the ones that I laughed at were down to Geoffrey Combs' performance Yeah, it's, I, I, like I say I just feel like when Peter Jackson is in charge of comedy he goes for the lowest common denominator and I think some of those elements as I say really hurt the Hobbit films. Not enough to make me dislike them, I still love the Hobbit films, but you definitely notice a difference between Jackson's Middle Earth and Tolkien's Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to, that just to me that just kind of is the example to look for really and it it's evident here in this film. Overall, I really wanted to watch The Frighteners again and I found myself to be a little disappointed with it. There are certain aspects that I really like about it, like we've spoke, Geoffrey Combs' performance I think is absolutely fantastic and the best of the movie. And I do like Michael J. Fox, but like in every other movie I've seen him in, I like Michael J. Fox, it's just one of those characters that I'm always going to like. I like a few of the effects. I hate, I'd probably say most of the effects that don't, really add up today the character plot lines are, are there their actions don't really tally up in certain scenes the humour can be pretty crass and dated and just not as funny as it could be if they want to go that way like you've said several times if the movie had lost that humour aspect it could have been a vastly different movie and almost better for it ultimately I was a little bit disappointed watching this but there is something about the movie that I like and it, it may not be just Combs or it may not be just Michael J. Fox's performance. There's something that I do like about the movie. It's not going to be one that I throw in every couple of months or when I'm feeling down and I want to just have a comfort movie. It's not going to be that type of thing but it may be something that I throw in every couple of years, every few years or 
you know, just throw it on to, to enjoy the hell out of. I may not give it my full attention while I'm watching it, because I don't feel it really deserves that. But it's one that I could have played in the background, and I'll dip in and out of when I want to enjoy certain scenes about it. And so when I came to a score for The Frighteners, I've had one in mind. And it really does split the board for me. There's, Like I said, there's bits I like, there's bits I don't like. So overall, I'm going to give it a straight down the middle, two and a half out of five. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> other than the grade, I, I, I just echo everything that you say. I mean, we've, we've said it all already. This was a film that I liked quite a lot, actually. I think if you'd have asked my 16, 17-year-old self to grade this, I'd have probably given it a four out of five. It's just not held up well. It's dated really badly, especially in the effects department. And as we've, you know, both kind of said many times during this, the humour. The humour just doesn't work. For every ten jokes, I'd say about two of them work. The other eight kind of fall flat on their backside. But the serious elements here, I really like. Like I said, the, the character arc that Bannister goes on... It's good. It's a good story. Everything surrounding it is a good story. The, the mystery about the killers, who the killers are, and the kind of the payoff when you find out what's going on there. That's all good stuff. Jeffrey Coombs should not be in this movie, but I'm so, so glad he is because once he comes in, every scene that he's in is just gold. I love it. It, it really entertains me so much more than when he's not in it. So, yeah, it's, it's it's a mess of a film. I think tonally it's all over the place. It's just, yeah, the characters, a lot of them just really great on my nerves, but then, you you know, you get gold from, from Coombs. I'd say it's a good film. <clears throat> that's a, a very... It, it's only just a good film. But like I said, that's because of those few kind of aspects in it that really still give it entertainment value where like you I'm not going to stick this on in a couple of months but you know five ten years from now when when my memories of this are a bit hazy you know what I might stick it in again it's good it's not great I'll give it a three out of five and now on to our top five segment where we've chosen our top five horror comedies of all time not the best in the genre but our personal favourites I don't know about you, but I had a really hard time narrowing this down. And every time I had to knock one off the list, it was... I had a pain in my chest when I had to do it. I just didn't want to knock some of these movies off. And I've had to knock off one of my favourite movies out of my top five. And that even that was heartbreaking. So I may, at the end of this, throw in some honourable mentions mm -hmm. just because I can't leave them unmentioned. Yeah, so I mean, my, my trouble is that comedy horror pretty much covers the two genres that I would say are my least favourite. I'm not a bit... <laughs> if, you, if you've got a, a list of films on at the cinema, the ones that I'm going to avoid first are comedies and horrors, and then, then probably animation. So if you had a comedy, horror, animation, chances are I'm not going to see that film. <laughs> but... Yeah, so to to stick comedy and horror together, I do I do think it makes something a bit more interesting. But it's bizarre that my two least favorite genres, when you combine them, yeah, it, it 
so I, I guess it, I guess I'm saying it makes it pretty difficult for me to kind of choose which films I'm going to put into my top five list. Yeah, and it's such a hard match, you know, to, to mix these two because there's, there's such differences between them. You know, it scares you, you've got laughs. How do you mm. balance that out? Hopefully yeah. in our top fives we'll discover some good ones that actually have uh, balanced out and made it into our top five. So, Brian, do you want to get started with your number five? Yeah, uh, my number five is Sleepy Hollow. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty big Tim Burton fan. I don't think he's done some of his best work in the past ten years or the past 15 years, to be honest. I, I think... I, I mean, I really liked Big Eyes, and uh, but I think he's he's before before Big Eyes, the best film he had done was Big Fish, which was like more than a decade before it. So, yeah, it's been a while since he's made some really good stuff. But Sleepy Hollow for me is one of them. I love the atmosphere in it. I love the the horror elements in it. I wouldn't say it was particularly particularly scary I wouldn't you know I don't think it's one of them hide behind the sofa kind of films mm-hmm. but it is classed as a horror but I also think it's funny I think Johnny Depp's quite funny in it uh, before he became annoying this this was kind of like <laughs> you know they they they'd work together Tim Burton and Johnny Depp quite a bit this was mm-hmm. one of them collaborations but I think when this came out it was still exciting to see what Johnny Depp and Tim Burton were going to come up with together. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not so much anymore, but before it became of how much makeup are they going to put on Johnny Depp? Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I, Sleepy Hollow. Number five in my list is a movie that I've been watching since I was roughly say ten. I, I absolutely love it, and that is the Monster Squad. Um. <laughs> I can tell by your reaction, Brian, that you love it as well. Now, The Monster Squad was written... By written, Shane Black. Written by Shane Black and directed by Fred Decker, who had this unbelievable one-two punch of The Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps, which I absolutely love. Unfortunately, he fell flat on his face with Robocop 3, but you know, we won't talk about that. I absolutely love The Monster Squad, simply because when I saw it, it seemed to bring together all together these horror staples that I hadn't seen, you know, like you've got Dracula, you've got Frankenstein, you've got money, you've got the Wolfman who has nards and <laughs> it just ties them all together in this fantastic story that I just absolutely adore. Now Brian, you want to tell everybody just how much you love Monster Squad? Here's the thing, right? If I hadn't have seen Monster Squad fairly recently I would be in your camp right now. I'd be singing the praises of Monster Squad. I saw Monster Squad when I was a kid, when I was about eight years old, and I loved it. I found it hilarious. I thought some of the horror elements in it were pretty good. It just stuck with me, and I never, I never saw it again. But I always tell people about it. I was, oh, I remember Monster Squad when I was a when I was a kid. That film was awesome. Anyway, it came on Now TV uh, a little while back, and I was like, Monster Squad, I'm proper watching that. And I was on a bit of a Shane Black binge after Nice Guys had come out. I watched it, and man, that film has not aged well. It is not a good film. And it, it just isn't. It, it Seriously, it cuts like a dagger through my heart to say that because my memories of it were so fond but it is not a good film and it 
it's worth saying that Shane Black wasn't the only scriptwriter of of the film. I think Fred Decker himself was one of the screenwriters on it as well. But definitely Shane Black's influence at times can be felt, certainly with some of the lines of dialogue. I think, you know, the, the Nards thing is probably something he, he came up with. But structurally, the film, yeah, it's all over the place. It, it kind of has complete lapses in logic that it doesn't, care to explain doesn't really feel like it needs to explain because it's it's talking to kids and as a result it doesn't credit the audience with intelligence uh, so yeah I, I didn't really like it um, I think it's, it's one of these movies that I saw when I was young and I continued to watch it up until now so I still get a whole heap load of enjoyment out of this <laughs> still and, and you, you may have problems with it, I don't see them I just see a movie that I out and out absolutely love every minute it's on screen. In fact, I, I I think my number one choice is going to be the same. Really, I, I'm going to be saying the same things about my number one choice as you are about this. That's fair enough. But it's like, even the Monster Squad when when it came out in DVD, it didn't come out here. It came out in America only at the time, and I imported it just to have a copy of it. And you can see what you want about the movie. I think I, I can't. I just can't wait to watch it again. It's something that I watch every year almost, <laughs> and I've never grown tired of it. I like the scary German guy. I just, I just like everything about it. I love that mad scene when the the kids are getting tooled up, and it's got that really cheesy eighties music song playing. It's a movie that I absolutely one hundred percent love. So my anyway, number four. <laughs> <laughs> can, can we not spend the next hour or two talking about Monster Squad? Uh, no, let's not. Uh, my number four is Zombieland. Just, yeah, really liked it. It's, it's funny. It's really funny. Um, but it has some good kind of gross-out stuff in it as well for, for the horror fans. Uh, excellent cameo from Bill Murray, which I think everybody mentions. But just, yeah, just genuine funny with likeable characters, yeah, I really like Zombieland as well. I like the fact that you don't really get a history of the characters. They're named after where they come from mm. and their personas are whatever they're going to be in the new world, whatever yeah. they were previously, doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's, it's a great movie and it's got some good chuckles in it as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my number four on my list is Ghostbusters. I don't know if you've mm. heard of this. So is that a little independent film or something? Yeah. Can I just yeah. prefix that with saying that it's not the one that came out in 2016? <laughs> <laughs> Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2 kind of like get merged together sometimes in my brain and I forget how simultaneously funny the first one is as well as being deeply horrific as well. Taking out the character of Rick Moranis in this because he is kind of funny throughout the whole thing but everything that happens to Sigourney Weaver is terrifying in the building the, the, the gargoyles that come to life is, is scary everything that Bill Murray does in the movie is absolutely hilarious same with the Dan Aykroyd I love it it just balances horror and scares and it's a terrific movie and I saw this in the cinema a couple of years ago and it holds up it's just a tremendous movie so that's my number four yeah Ghostbusters was the first film I ever rented on video Right. So uh, yeah, uh, 
watched it quite a lot when I was a kid. Not on my list, um, but yeah, definitely, definitely one that I would have to debate over about mm-hmm. kicking out of my top five. But my number three choice is Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just you know, kind of came along at a time when the the comedy horror had pretty much died a death. I think I I can't really recall that many comedy horror films before Shaun of the Dead that got that got as much love as Shaun of the Dead did. Um, no, it, it it almost kind of died out by that point by the time mm-hmm. Shaun of the Dead. Uh, my number three is Gremlins, a movie that has these horrible little creatures doing horrible things to people, yet halves me in stitches at the same time. Whenever I think of Gremlins, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Gizmo. Gizmo, right. The first thing that pops into my head, <laughs> and I don't know why it does this, is when the Gremlins are all green and nasty and that, mm. doing caroling. <laughs> And I don't. Whenever I think of Gremlins, I think of that scene, and the, the camera pans along the line of of Gremlins, and there's just this one at the end who, before sings anything, studies the, the sheet. You know, it seems his head and goes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just that for some reason that sticks in my head. But the fact that these little beasties are terrorising this small town, it's got these jokey scenes of them in like in the bar playing cards, you know, there's one flashing, there's the female one, the one filling up with booze, Gizmo being as cute as he is, the, the, the father being sort of like a, a comedic gadget man whose gadgets never just quite work. It's a great movie that I just love to throw on and, and watch. It, it's not as comedic as the second one gets, <coughs> but whereas the second one gets more funny, it loses all the horror elements that's in the first one. So Gremlins is my number three. Yeah, Gremlins is a film that I loved as a kid, watched a ton of times when we were kids with my brothers. But now, watching it as an adult, I, f- I feel like it's a little bit overrated. I feel like the nostalgia factor has a big part to play in why a lot of people love it. But when you, when you watch it, for me, it, it kind of doesn't have a lot of internal logic there are scenes in it that yeah there's there's just no logic to them like i mean we're talking about you know green little creatures that come out of gizmo and and then start eating everything clearly it's not logic but the scenes still need to like kind of cut together in a logical way in a logical fashion and there's just certain things that happen in it that kind of yeah put it it puts me off it doesn't it doesn't hold up story wise for me as much as my number one choice but we'll get to that Brian num- can you can you pinpoint exactly when the child inside you died because these <laughs> movies that you're writing off are terrific <laughs> Hey, I never wrote off Ghostbusters. I still think that's a great film. Um, you know, but I just, just Gremlins, it's, it's I get, well, yeah, I, I guess I wrote off uh, Monster Squad, but yeah, Gremlins for me, it just, as an adult, it just doesn't hold up as well as I'd like it to. Uh, what can I say? It's it's still a good film, you know, it's, st- it's still one that I'd quite happily watch. I'd say it's a good film, I'd recommend it to people, but. Oh, Brian, we don't want your pity recommendation. <laughs> 
everything everything will become clearer when we get to my number one choice. But first up is number two, and that's Scream. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just a really great send-up of the slasher genre, but one that does it in a way that isn't just parody. It's almost a love letter to the slasher genre by someone, well, by two people, really, who understand it. You've got Wes Craven, who directed it, and you've got... Kevin Williamson, who was a, a huge fan of these slasher films growing up, so he had he had this great love for it, understood the rules of them. So seeing Scream for the first time, it, it was the first film that I ever watched in the cinema more than once. I saw it three times at the cinema, and it was the, also I think I've mentioned this before. It was also the first eighteen rated film that I got to see at the cinema. So yeah, it, it was quite impactful because the scares were scary and yet the laughs were funny so unlike the frighteners that we view you know that we viewed and we've reviewed it tonight both those different tones the horror and the comedy are done spot on they both work brilliantly and in tandem with each other very similar to yourself scream was the first movie that i saw multiple times in the theater and I just love the hell out of it. I'm a great lover of slasher movies. They're one of my favourite genres or sub-genres. And this was just the pinnacle of that for me. You know, it referenced things, it created new things, and it was it was bloody as hell. Mm. And it was just a great movie. And I found that most of the humour came from one character in it. Yeah. And that was Dewey. Um, <laughs> and I, I debated putting it on my list but I felt it was more horror than it was comedy but again it's one of my favourite movies of all time it's one that I almost burnt myself out of there was a period where I was going home home from work and I would watch it every night Mm. you know know, I don't mean for like one or two nights I mean for like three, four months yeah me too I watched the same movie me too yeah Yeah. it's fantastic it's a great pick a great movie Mm. yeah Uh, my number two is one that you've previously mentioned, and that is Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead, for me, was a movie that I went to see in the cinema. I really loved Spaced. I loved Edgar Wright. I loved Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. And this was the the first movie that he did, the culmination. And it just worked on so many levels. And I liked it. I didn't love it. I thought it was good. And that was in the cinema. Then Hot Fuzz came out. That was fantastic. And that was the movie for me. And it was years until I went back to Shaun of the Dead. And when I went finally went back to it, I realised that that movie was absolutely perfect. Everything about it was 100% amazing. Everything was firing in all cylinders. The references to other movies are subtle in some cases and perfect. They don't compromise the story. They fit in with what the story is trying to do as well. And even though it's a little bit more comedy than it is horror, it's still... One of the best British movies of all time, in my opinion, and one of the best horror comedies of all time. So, my number one choice. This is where we really get into it. Now, looking back on the films that I've already mentioned in my top five, Mm -hmm. if I was arguing the case for which is the best film, I would say all of the ones I've mentioned are better than my number one choice. Um, when when you want, if you want to get into film criticism, if you want to get into the 
ins and outs of filmmaking and, and justification for what makes art art, uh, then, yeah, I think every film I've listed so far is probably better than my number one choice. But what my number one choice has going for it is that nostalgia factor that I talked about earlier. And when I was a kid, if there was Team Gremlins and there was Team Critters. And I was Team Critters all the way. I love Critters. Um, it is the film that probably got my love affair with cinema started, like, properly. I mean, there were films when I was little that I was taken to the cinema to see, you know, E.T., Peter Pan, Never Ending Story. I, re I specifically remember those films as being the first films I went to see. So, you know, clearly something started in me then. But Critters was the first film that, when we got a VCR... As kids, me and my brothers were, were each given a videotape. And we were told, you know, that's your videotape. You can tape what you want off the TV. And there, you know, and there you go, you have it. The first film that I taped off the TV was Critters. And I just loved it. And I'm not kidding. Every day for about a year, a year and a half, when I got home from school... Critters went on. I must have seen that film a hundred times. Easy. And I'm not even joking. It must have been a hundred times. My mum and dad must have been absolutely sick of it. And my brothers even more so. But for me, structurally, it just works a lot better than Gremlins does, I think. It has less plot holes in it, I think. Because it's it's a quite simply, it's a home invasion movie. It's a very simple story. There's a, a bunch of people trapped on a farm. These critters are trying to get in. Now, Gremlins obviously takes place in a whole town, so they keep cutting to different different spots and different things are going on. So you've got all these little kind of subplot-type things going on. And for me, that drags the film down. And one of the strengths of Critters is that, yeah, it all takes place essentially in this one location. Now, you do get some stuff with these bounty hunters going around the town... But ultimately, it's drawn back to this farm, and it mostly happens there. And I just think it's a really great introduction to horror. It is very funny. Uh, I certainly laughed a lot at it when I was a kid. I got a lot of humour from it. But it's it's not it's not very hard horror. It's 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 kind of at that level where you know you can just about get away with it with kids. Um, and I think, yeah, if you want to introduce your kids to, to, to horror films, I'd say it's a, a good one to start with. But I, I just love it. Uh, the nostalgia factor, like I say, just really kicks in. And I will defend Critters till my dying day. I love it. Critters, OK. So where do I start? <laughs> I have got to say that I absolutely love Critters. I, not only do I love Critters, I love all four Critters movies. I do. I have the box set. <laughs> so do I. And I particularly like Critters 4 in Space. Yeah. Angela Bassett is such a kick-ass woman in that. She's fantastic. And let us not forget, this is the series that gave Leonardo DiCaprio mm. his start. Yes. Um, yep. And uh, it also stars D. Wallace Stone, who was in The Frighteners. <laughs> was in The Frighteners. Mm. Um, you've got no arguments here. I like Critters. I think it's a thoroughly good movie. I would, in fact, I think it's one 
or maybe the series, we should do a special episode on at some point. Yes. Yeah? Yes. I'd have no problems with that. It's a, a great pick. Um, so we'll move on to my number one. And like you said, a movie that you could introduce your your, your kids to, to horror is probably not going to be used in a sense with my number one movie. <laughs> I have gone for... Well, first of all, when I was looking at the, the criteria in my head, I wanted something that was genuinely horrific but terrified me it was pure horror but would make me laugh as well evil dead too exactly that (laughs) is exactly what my movie is (coughs) and it's a movie for the longest time that was stuck in my psyche before I even saw it because the poster was everywhere it was I think it was banned for a while as well in Mm. the UK as a video nasty It it was it was just told that this movie's too much for you. So when I finally got to see it, it was literally too much for me. It was, it's full of horrific images of these deadites, the way they look, the way they act, the voices, they're disgusting. But it's juxtaposed with these tremendously funny images of when Ash loses a hand. I mean, the, the man's lost a hand, but the hand's kicking his ass <laughs> you know, he's chasing out the house it shouldn't be funny it's horrific and funny in the same scene and when I think of horror comedy this is the one movie that truly nails it right down the middle you know 100% for me and I, I'm a huge fan of the Evil Dead series and even when I was juggling between did I want to put Evil Dead 2 in or did I want to do Army of Darkness this is the one that epitomised Horror and comedy. So my number one is Evil Dead Two. Just uh, like Evil Dead Two for me, I, I I saw it once, and it was a film that I just found to be extreme. Like you say, it's the the, the horror elements in it are extreme. It is genuinely funny, but the horror is extreme. And for me, it was it was always just a little bit too much. Um, so yeah. Like I said before, this this was a hard list for me to, to narrow down, so I really want to mention some other movies that I wanted to have in contention um, for my list. So I'll just quickly run through some of these. So I had Beetlejuice in my list, mm-hmm. a movie that I really like as well, and it, you know some of its effects were felt in The Frighteners. I also had one of my favourite movies that I watched again last year, and it really holds up, and that is The Little Shop of Horrors. Absolutely adore. A weird one. A movie that I've seen quite a few times and I've had it on video, DVD, Blu-ray and that is Colour Clowns from Outer Space. <laughs> it's not so much funny, it's just weird and horrific. I mean, who? I don't know what they were smoking when they came out with the idea of this movie, but man, it is just weird and kind of off-putting. It's off-kilter. Mm. Uh, a recent one is Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Have you seen this one? I've not. I've heard a lot about it, but it's it really circumvents the horror genre because it has these two hillbillies who would usually be the colours in these movies, and they are just idiots, really. And they're going to fix up this little cabin in the woods from themselves. And there's this group of college kids who are going for a weekend away, and the college kids keep killing themselves by accident. <laughs> But it always happens around Tucker or Dale. So they think that these two hillbillies are killing them and these two guys are the most incompetent morons around. And it's just, it was one of the best modern horror comedies I can think of. And the one that really hurt 
like I said, Army of Darkness was a touch or go. I love that movie, but I didn't feel it was horror comedy. But the one that really hurt to cut off my list was the original Fright Night. I've got that on my list right here, yeah. The Fright Night's actually a film that we need to do on this show at some point. Absolutely. I had Fright Night on my list. It's a great movie, and for so long I had it on my list, and eventually, just before I come on the show, I just cut it off, and Mm. I wish I didn't have to. Have you got any (laughs) any honourable mentions? Yeah, um, one is Dog Soldiers, the Neil Marshall film, his Mm -hmm. debut film, Uh, from, From Dusk Till Dawn. I think it's yep. a pretty good well, film. Uh, Witches of Eastwick. Mm-hmm. Fairly recent one was Krampus. It's not laugh out loud funny, but there are moments of humour in it. It's kind of got a bit of a Gremlins vibe to it, I think. Lost Boys, which I'm kind of on the on the fence with because I saw Lost Boys fairly recently. I did uh, did an episode of Movie Night on it, and it didn't really hold up as, as well I was, as, as I was hoping it to. That's that's a real shame, because I was a huge Lost Boys fan when I was younger. That was one of those ones that got watched. In fact, it got watched so much that I actually wore out my VHS copy and had mm. to buy another one. Uh, great yeah. film. <coughs> yeah, we, we, we watched it quite a lot when we were little as well, um, so it was a shame, because I was looking forward to getting to it, and yeah, when it didn't hold up as well as I hoped, it was a bit of a bit of a sore point. Mm-hmm. Fright Night was was at the top of my honourable mentions. I also had Attack the Block, which I saw fairly recently. I don't. It wasn't really in any kind of serious contention to make the top five, but because it was a fairly recent watch and I enjoyed it, it wasn't spectacular, but. Mm-hmm. Great. So that's 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 a good uh, a good amount of horror comedies. If there's anything there you haven't seen, then get them checked out as soon as you can. So let's move on to our what we watched segment. Is there anything recently that you want to talk about? So basically, the the best film I've seen in a good long while actually uh, is Hell or High Water. Uh, very very good modern day western. Have you seen that one? This movie. I'm not going to see it in the cinemas. I know that right now. Oh. Um, I have booked it three times, and each time I've booked it, things have arisen that has stopped me from going to see it. And I've just kind of resigned to the fact that I am going to miss what everybody is proclaiming to be one of the best movies of the year. It really is. It really is one of the best films of the year. It's just it's it's definitely going to be in my top ten come the end of the year. Uh, I think it's in my top five at the minute. So, and if I see it again, it might go up. So yeah, I I loved it from start to finish. Is it, is it just the whole story, the acting? It's just, yeah, it's just the story. It's the the commentary on modern life, on just the way it equates, kind of what the banks are doing to people today, to what essentially the settlers did to the Indians when they pushed them. <laughs> Push right. them out, uh, you know, and and it's just these two characters, these two brothers who go on this bank robbing spree to essentially get the money to get back the house which a bank is trying to take off them. When you when you see them in action, when you see what they're doing, they from a moral standpoint, you can't really condone what they're doing. But that's because you see their violent acts, but. You're kind of on their side. You can't help but be on their side when you see them talking to the bankers, and when you, 
yeah, when you see these slimy, grubby bankers who just, yeah, you just, oh, man. It's just, it does a really good job of getting you on these guys' side, even though, quite frankly, you shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's one I'm, I, I need to see before the year's out. Um, I'll, I'll try once more to see if I can go and see it in the cinema. But like I said, it's just a, such a... It's as if everything has conspired to stop me from seeing it. <laughs> the thing is, it's, it's very cinematic as well. That's the thing. It's uh, yeah. it's it, there's quite quite a lot of action in it. There's more action in it than I was expecting. There's there's some real flurries of beautifully shot action in it. Um, so yeah, definitely definitely worth checking out at the cinema on the big screen. I think it lends itself well to a big screen experience. One that I watched recently, I watched it on Amazon Prime actually, and that is A Hard Day, which is a Korean movie. Mm, not A Hard Day's Night. <coughs> no, no, no more of that. Uh, every now and again I, I, I dive into these uh, Asian movies because sometimes you can find a real gem, and this is definitely a gem. And and amongst all these rough stones, so to speak, it's it's a fantastic movie that literally I had no idea where the hell this thing was going. Right from the opening scene, it's well. How do I explain this? It, it's unlike any American Hollywood movies because it breaks all the conventions. Everything you think a Hollywood movie would do, this almost does a one eighty and does the complete opposite. So the movie starts off with. This guy who should be at his mother's funeral, but he is in a car driving and he has a choice between going to his work where there's a problem or going back to the funeral and fixing that. And in amongst this, he hits somebody in his car and he doesn't know what to do. The person's dead, he has this choice and he picks up the body and puts it in the boot of his car and decides to go back to his funeral. And then things start to snowball and escalate and decisions get made that just caused this guy to have one of the worst times of his life. <laughs> and I try not to give too much away in case you ever happen to see this or that, Brian, because it is, it is a fantastic movie, but it does such things that you've just, you just don't see in Hollywood movies. Like, at the end of the movie, there is, a, there is a bad guy in this movie, eventually, and when the good guy and bad guy meet at the end, there's this little scene where he, the bad guy turns up at the, the good guy's house, and before they get into a, a fight, he walks by him and goes to his bathroom and goes for a pee. And you just hear, as it, as it like holds on the good guy's face, it just you just hear the guy peeing in the background, and you're like, now this would never happen in a Hollywood movie. <coughs> and it just, but, that, but there, it breaks so many conventions. I, I'm struggling to really recommend it here, because to recommend it, I'd have to tell you more about the movie, and that would waste it for you. But this thing was amazing. I had no idea where it was going. And visually, it just was stunning. The cinematography in this was amazing. I actually watched it on the Saturday morning and then I rewatched it on the Sunday again. It was just it was that good a movie. That's the best recommendation I can give for it. Alright, one to watch then. Um Next up for me is Don't Breathe. Stephen Lang is fantastic in the film. Um, for me, there's there's some heavy-handed dialogue in the film towards the end that I feel is is kind of 
in many ways it's the strength of the film and also it's not there's a bit of a spiritual element which I wasn't expecting at the end of the film um, all to do with whether God exists or not um, you know you've got this this I mean, I don't want to give. Yeah, I don't want to give stuff away for people who haven't seen it. But um, let's just say now, spoiler warning. Spoiler warning. I'm going to go into spoilers. So if you've not seen, don't breathe. Then, you know, fast forward or whatever. But, uh, there'll be a, a note in the comments letting you know where you can skip to to miss out all the spoilers on this review. Yeah. So basically, at the end, when we learn. Basically, that this guy's got the 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 girl who hit his girl in the car in his basement, and and they find her. They they kind of try to rescue her. She ends up getting killed, and he goes into this whole spiel about how. Well, well, first off, she starts praying. She actually starts praying, God, you know, please get help me, get me out of this. And he goes into this whole dialogue about how there is no God, he doesn't believe in God, and and then he says that when when you cease to believe in God, you it's, you'd be surprised what what you can do, you know, like the, the bad things that you can do once you once you come to the realization that God doesn't exist and that. But then, as they escape, she has this little moment with the ladybird that kind of points her to the key. Now, you can read that as just as just nothing. You can read that as... And I think that's purposeful. They, you know, they, they, in a way, it's subtle. I think the dialogue is heavy-handed, but I think the the events that happen are, are, are subtle. And it's, it's this thing with the ladybird. And my take on it is that that's God's miracle. You know, it's, it's God showing her the way out. So you, you can see that from her character, you know, she has a reason by the end of this film to believe in God. Um, whereas he's someone who has abandoned God and therefore has given in to all the darkest instincts of man. <clears throat> now, all that I found interesting. It made the film more interesting for me as a viewer. Um, but I thought it, as I say, from the from a dialogue standpoint, I thought it was quite heavy-handed the the dialogue itself that got us there felt a little bit kind of forced a little bit stilted that being said regardless of that everything else in the film did exactly what you want a horror a thriller to do which was keep me on the edge of my seat i was tense beyond belief throughout this film um literally there was moments where in the corner of my eye, there was a, there was a guy sat just a, a few seats down from me. And a couple of times in the movie, I noticed him turning his head to me, like he he was looking over at me. And then I realised it's because I had my leg up and my, and my, and my arm up, kind of like, almost like, come on! Like, you know, you're literally itching for a character to get through a door or get through a window or get down a, a, a an air vent you know and, and you're almost kind of geeing them up to get through and I like I say it's only because this guy kept looking at me I realized yeah he's just seeing someone sat next to him constantly moving his leg or, or his, his arm just so I, I realized just how tense the film was making me so you know that's that's the intention of a horror film that's the intention of a thriller so it met those intentions perfectly I think 
brilliant film. And can I just say, this is, this is why I love movies so much. Because of the different interpretations you can get from watching a movie. You're, you're mm. quite vocal about your faith. And yeah. you've, you've drawn something like that out of the movie. I saw the movie as well, and I didn't see any of that at all. But I didn't carry any, anything about faith into the movie. But mm. th- this is why I think it's so important to not only watch movies, but discuss them as well, to get somebody else's viewpoint out of something like that. That's something that I would never have noticed. But next time mm. I watch it, I may pick up on that because you've said that to me. Yeah, you know it's it's it's, it's great. It's why we should have these conversations about the movies. As for uh, "Don't Breathe" itself, I kind of kind of liked it, and I think the the thing I liked most about it was the atmosphere it created. It made mm-hmm. me feel icky. It made me feel off. I was in the cinema, and I like horror movies, and I love to see a movie in the cinema. It's one thing that just relaxes me. I I I wanted to leave. And this was this was before anything had happened to anybody inside the house. Just the fact that these kids were in the house walking about, I, I it made me extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. Which is why when I did my review for it, I gave it a high score because it was effective. You know, and, and it may have faults within the movie. It's definitely not perfect, but yeah. that atmosphere it creates that it just gets beneath the skin. It's it's a, a a horrible thing. Great movie. I, I don't know if it's one that I'll go back to multiple times, but damn, that atmosphere was effective. Yeah. Tension 101. One that I recently saw the other day was The Inf- Infiltrator, starring Brian Cranston. Mm. Yeah, me too. Now, I saw this. In fact, I'm going to kind of mix this with two reviews, just to be extremely awkward. But I also saw Emporium as well. And Didn't see that. The, the movies are ex- extremely similar in the fact that it's got an FBI agent going undercover to basically stop worse things happening. And it, it, they touch on very similar themes in that. I actually preferred Imperium because the infiltrator, I felt the story was a bit all over the place. It dragged out, it was a little bit overlong, it tried to glamorise certain aspects of it. I feel as if it touched on certain points, but it didn't like, really hammer them home when the main character, Brian Kingston, is playing um, in the movie, makes friends with part of the drug cartel. They're almost super friends instantaneously. Yeah. And I just didn't buy it. You'd, you'd expect <coughs> these people to be extremely cautious about what they're doing, not just to be instantly friendly with somebody else. And I liked the movie. I didn't love it. It felt a bit overlong. Brian Cranston is as good as ever, but he can't seem to snap away from this persona that he's created, mm-hmm. which is strange because yeah. because when I look at him, I think Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, it's just I know you gave this a three star rating on Letterboxd. So I gave it a three and a half. I did like it a little bit more than you did. Um, I like the tension in the film. I think. Once we get into the second act, things do genuinely start to get tense. As this as this guy gets deeper and deeper in, it gets tense because it's you you're kind of worried about what lines he's going to cross um, because he's a, he's very much a family man. He's devoted to his wife, and there's several points in the film where you th- you think and you expect that 
he's going to lose that, and he doesn't. He keeps his integrity throughout the film, which I liked. I really liked that aspect of the film, um, but, you know, it comes at a price. Mm-hmm. But the thing for me, and I think this is essentially what you were just saying, I don't like the way the film... It's almost asking us to feel sorry for these drug dealers who get taken down at the end. Brian Cranston's character, he, you know, he, he, he gets close to them, like you say, and towards the end of the film, he, he's almost sorry that some of these guys are getting arrested. One guy in particular, you know, and and I'm sat there thinking, no, I have no pity for these people at all. They've ruined, they've destroyed countless lives with the drugs they're peddling. Mm -hmm. And they come out with these complete BS excuses for why what they do is, is, you know, it should be held in higher regard. You know, there's that supply and demand speech that the guy gives. And it's just like, if you want to justify your actions to yourself, mate, by all means, come up with, with whatever nonsense excuses you want. But I ain't going to sympathise with you when you get taken down because you deserve to get taken down. So, I, I yeah, I, I don't... That, for me, is the aspects of the film I don't like. I don't like that it is asking us to sympathise with these guys getting caught um, through the eyes of Brian Cranston's character. Because if I was Cranston's character, I personally would be like, I don't give a toss, you deserve it. There was one scene in particular that kind of annoyed me in the movie, <clears throat> and it's a nothing scene that probably most people wouldn't have clocked onto, and it's the scene where he gets um, a bloody piece of mail. Mm, yeah. Now, he gets it at, at his office in a mailbox. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and then we see him before getting the mail, opening it, dealing with it right there and then. But for some reason, this piece of mail gets taken home. And mm. rather than getting dealt with at home, it gets thrown in a cabinet as he goes into his office and starts listening to tape recordings of yeah. wiretaps. And it seems almost forced to create a sort of threat towards the family that doesn't ring yeah. true with the rest of the movie. Mm. Maybe, I mean, they couldn't have had it going to his home, but it's his fault. It doesn't seem like the kind of person that would leave something that was work-related just lying around yeah. like that for his kids to discover. Yeah, um, and and from that point on, I started to see sort of like the movie forces into corner to f- try and feel certain ways, and that, yeah. that that gets reinforced even later on when he's kind of fallen out with his wife a little bit. When his partner comes over and picks up the tux, it just doesn't feel that it's there to further the story. It feels as if it's there for us to emote towards the family and towards his resolution of getting back with his wife. Ultimately, the the infiltrator was a good movie. It's not one I'll go back and revisit. So, Brian, what have you chosen for the next episode? Uh, yeah, next episode is an Edgar Wright film, part of the Cornetto trilogy, the one I haven't seen, which is At World's End. Um, yeah, so I think the, the top five that we're, we're going to do is top five alien creature designs. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to watching that at the World's End again. And the alien creature, I already know what my number one is right now but I won't spoil that I'll save it thanks for listening to Brits on Flicks if you want to rate us or review us on iTunes that would be fantastic it allows other people to discover us and it allows us 
a little ego boost and a, a, a little push to do more of these episodes. As usual, if you want to find us on YouTube, you can find myself on Man vs. Film, you can find Brian on Brian Lomax Movie Talk, and all our social media links are in the comment box below. So please follow along and let us know that you heard the podcast and come and visit us on the YouTube channels. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next month for another Brits on Flicks. The one we want to get to is Ben-Hur, isn't it? (laughs) Sure, why not? (laughs) Pinpoint exactly when the child inside you died because these movies that you're writing off are terrific movies. Anyway, when a mysterious... No, hang on. Anyway, when a mis... Ah, man alive. This is why I should write it out. Good grief. That's some smart that's, thinking. That's smart yeah. thinking, that, isn't it? The yeah. beauty of not being live. Oh, I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs>